It's Thursday, April 16th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I have taken umbrage at the umbrage. I guess Newton's third law of umbrage is that it is neither to be taken nor given, just transformed, and I'm living that. So I realize what happened is that I took one pundit's umbrage. Let me play that. Here's Maria Inahosa on Meet the Press this Sunday, and Chuck Todd is talking about the observation that we tend to elect presidents who've been in the public stage for less than 15 years. So if you look at all the candidates, the ones that meet the Roush criteria, 14 years or less, Christie, Cruz, Jindal, O'Malley, Paul, Perry, Rubio, Walker, Webb, the ones that are quote-unquote stale are Biden, Bush, Chafee, Hillary Clinton, Mike Huckabee, and Rick Santorum. How does Hillary Clinton deal with this freshness issue? I have to be honest with you, the terms expiration date and stale and too late for you as a woman, it's like, I don't know if men have the same reaction. That's nuclear. That's nuclear. That's just like you're telling us we've expired. So I think that's problematic. All right. Yeah, we know. Look, no one is actually comparing a human being to milk. And as Maria Konnikova once told us, if you are, just smell it. Just go by the smell test. Don't go by the date. Anyway, I get what you're saying, Maria. I get don't compare human beings to, to milk or to butter. But I didn't really detect sexism or ageism. Just a little empirical number-based observation. So I took umbrage. I took umbrage at her umbrage. I got to admit it. And I sat with that umbrage. And then I tapped into the umbrage this morning when, again, on NBC, I love that Peacock network, Matt Lauer does a long piece. He talks to Chris Christie about a presidential run. He, at the end, reports that Chris Christie attended his high school reunion, stayed out till like 2.30 in the morning. So they come out of the taped piece, and here's what Hoda says in reaction. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a ton of energy, doesn't he? All right. Oh, yes. So much energy has just a ton. He has a ton of energy. Oh, bless his overworked, possibly ready-to-explode heart. And he's not even using a motorized scooter. You know what? Good for him. Listen, I, someone, and it's going to be me, has got to stand up for the large, rude, northeastern Springsteen fan demographic, okay? Look at me. Look at me taking umbrage without even breaking into a sweat. Good for me. On the show today, I spiel about the gyrocopter again. The Washington press course still is breaking into a sweat, a full-on panic about a sextagenarian's flying Schwinn. But first, we're counting down the hits, the 50-year-old hits. So this is the sesquicentennial of a lot of famous Civil War stuff. But you know what? It's also, or 50 years ago, I should say, it was the centenary of Civil War stuff. And 50 years ago was 1965. And that's when there were a couple of weird number one songs on the Billboard charts and a couple of really deserving number one songs. Although, what's a deserving one number one song? It's just a song that people liked. I'm, I'm thinking of I Can't Get No Satisfaction, routinely voted as the best rock and roll song of all time. And I'm Henry VIII, I am. I am. I added an extra I am just to honor Herman's Hermits. Well, here, and I, I think we're going to try to debut a new series where we take a year and look at the number one hits and just figure out what the hell was going on. No better person to do this. With me, then, Chris Malamphy, who writes the Why Is This Song Number One column for Slate. We're going to do the historical version of that. Hello, Chris. Hey, how are you, Mike? Okay, we, let's just start right there with Herman's Hermits. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
65 was a pretty great year. But what's funny, you're going right to Herman's Hermits. It was also a strange year. Like, it was a year that had tremendous highs. And I don't know if I want to call them lows, because actually a lot of these whimsical records that went to number one in 65, some of them are quite memorable and pretty great. Herman's Hermits had two number one hits in 1965, and they're both very goofy. Uh, They both got rather long titles as well. The first one is called uh, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. And they both have kind of a vaudeville music hall, very British vibe. And uh, what's crazy about Herman's Hermits is that they were arguably bigger in America than they were in England. Uh, in fact, uh, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter wasn't even originally intended as a, a single, and it wasn't released as a single in England at all. Uh, but it absolutely took off here in America and uh, became their breakthrough here. You know, it was goofy. He did the accent, right? I'm Henry the Henry. I am. Yeah, it's, yeah. And Henry had three syllables. Henry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so four Beatles songs made number one in 1965. Right, five if you include uh, the carryover from the end of 64, which was still number one in the first two weeks of January, I Feel Fine. By the way, my opinion, one of the most underrated Beatles songs. You never real hear people... ro- It's a real rock and roll song. It's a real rock and roll song. It opens with the first intentional feedback in a, in a pop so record cool. ever. Uh, John Lennon uh, playing, it sounds like an electric guitar. He claims it was a, an acoustic uh, that was wired up. Um, but it, it makes this fantastic feedback noise at the beginning, and then uh, it's just a rockin' tight number. It, one of my favorite Beatles songs. Of Talk all time. about another Beatles song that starts with, I mean, every Beatles song is iconic, but Help, the opening chord to Help. Absolutely. Great opening chord. Actually, we have a couple this year that open interestingly, right? You've got the, the, the great opening harmonies of Help. You've got the feedback at the beginning of I Feel Fine. And then in between those two, uh, in March, uh, a two-week number one for the Beatles, Eight Days a Week, which opens with a fade-in. Very rare. It's 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 quiet, and then in fades the band, uh, yeah. uh, all strumming together, and it's it's a great uh, party record. And yesterday, Frank Sinatra's favorite Beatles song. I think he called it a perfect song that yes. charted in nineteen sixty five at number one. These are all different albums. I mean, Help came out that year, right? But but um, yeah, I feel fine was a standalone single. Uh, yeah. Three of those songs were from the Help soundtrack. From Help, yesterday, um, Help, of course, and the one we haven't mentioned yet, Ticket to Ride, which is another out and out classic. Uh, uh, contains a fantastic Ringo drum performance, by the way, if all of you are wondering about Ringo getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. This is one of those records that people point to and say, if you doubt Ringo's skill, listen to the way he's pounding the skins on Ticket to Ride. Yeah. Some have even argued that he's inventing heavy metal drumming on that song, even oh, though it's not, it's not a heavy metal <laughs> song. No, but it's seriously, the way yeah. he's using the tom and, and, and crashing, I mean, he, he's, he's almost thrashing on this Rickenbacker folky song, and uh, the, the drums on that song are pretty fantastic. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. But she don't care. His sense of feel, his use of fills, very hard to replicate. When you talk to actual drummers, they all say 
people who diss Ringo don't really realize what Ringo's doing and how tough what he does is and how he's in the pocket every time. It's a very skillful thing he does. So as I go through the list in 1965, we had really gotten away from, I mean, we know, look, if Satisfaction's out there, we know that the rock era, the British invasion, it's in full bloom. But still, when I think about number ones, I think about safer songs. I think about songs that's kind of comforting to middle America. Sure. And we got that. We got this diamond ring, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Mm-hmm. But you also had pretty daring songs. I'm thinking about Eve of Destruction, how this must have gone down in 19... 19- you know, I thought that this was a later song. I thought this was more a counterculture song. This is, if anything, pre-counterculture, pre-Summer of Love, and a really confrontational song. It's it's early for that. And and you can really see 65. I mean, if, if we were going to characterize the whole year, it's a pivot year, right? Yeah. It's 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 not only smack dab in the middle of the 60s, but it's the moment when you see the 60s becoming the 60s. If, if you know, the big coming out party for the 60s is the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in February of 1964, 65 is the moment you see everything kind of pivoting over. Even Destruction is a strange record. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, I was reading up on it last night and I had forgotten this tidbit, but it's basically a, a first take, uh, which is why the vocal is frankly not great. I mean, the guy is basically like yowling it. It's quite raw and uh, it wasn't intended for release. It was originally going to be a B-side. They recorded it in the middle of the night. And it was very indebted to Dylan. Eastern world It is exploding Violence flaring Bullets loading You're old enough to kill But not for voting You don't believe in war But what's that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River Has bodies floating But you tell me This is the only year, 1965, where the Rolling Stones have more than one number one hit. They had a total of eight number one hits across uh-huh. the years, the, the last one being uh, Miss You in 1978. But 65, I mean, when they broke, they broke big. They, they'd already had a few hits earlier, uh, like Time is on My Side and Play With Fire. But th- this is, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, obviously an immortal song. It broke them pretty wide. The Birds also had a second number one song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Yes, which is written by, can can you recall who wrote Turn, Turn, Turn? Uh, well, it wasn't Dylan. I don't know. Barry Maguire. Think an earlier folky bard than Dylan. Pete Seeger? Exactly right. All right. Mr. Pete Seeger. Except he didn't write every single word of the song because famously, the lyrics of Turn, Turn, Turn... Are from the Bible. Are, t- are from yeah, the Bible. Yeah. There's literally a factoid in a Billboard book that Turn, Turn, Turn holds the distinction of having the oldest lyrics ever in a number one hit because those songs, uh, excuse me, those uh, lyrics go all the way back to the Book of Ecclesiastes. And whenever I'm at a funeral, really, this has had... This is a thought that has independently occurred to millions of people. They're at a funeral, maybe a church service, often a funeral and then everyone who hears that's like oh wow just like the bird song just like the bird they, song they always think that
So the Stones have multiple number ones, the Beatles, the Supremes. Is this the best year for the Supremes? What a juggernaut the yeah, Supremes Yeah, the Supremes were. were an absolute juggernaut. They break through in 64 with uh, Where Did Our Love Go? That's their first number one hit. And then they are just pumping them out. You know, in total, and they had all of them during the 60s, the, the Supremes with Diana Ross had 12 number one hits, and five of them, five of them are in 1965. So an absolutely epic year for them. It's a great year for Motown all around, let's just say. It's also the only year in Motown history where both the Temptations and the Four Tops have number one hits. The Temptations with the utterly immortal My Girl. It's probably playing at a supermarket checkout line right now as we speak. And uh, the four tops with uh, I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Uh, both just unimpeachably great Motown records. And then the Supremes with In Order, uh, four number one hits uh, just during 65, Come See About Me, Stop in the Name of Love, Back in My Arms Again, and I Hear a Symphony. Whenever you're near a symphony, a Big year for them as well. A big year for Motown in general. Sonny and Cher hit number one with I Got You, Babe. Great pop single. Absolutely. No matter what we think of Sonny and or Cher. That's right. Written and produced by uh, Sonny, who was uh, 30 at the time, and uh, Cher, who was 19 at the time. Wow. They say we're young and we don't know. We won't find out till we grow. Well, I don't know. Well, that's true. The last number one of the year is by the rare band. I can't even think of another named after the drummer, the Dave Clark Five. Yes. And the Jay Giles band is named after, you know, not Peter Wolf, the lead singer, just a guitarist. And Fleetwood Mac, sort of half half of Fleetwood yeah. Mac is named after the drummer. Right. Yeah. Over and over. Well, I went to a dance just the other night. The sheer number of Hall of Fame acts uh, yeah. going to number one in this year. I, I count nine different Hall of future Hall of Famers. 1965, 50 years ago. I don't know. Doesn't seem that long. These songs have been part of my life, all my life. Chris Malamphy writes the Why Is This Song Number One column for Slate and... Okay, guys, suggest a year, and we'll uh, go through it, and we'll talk individually and what it means big picture. Thanks a lot, Chris. You got it, Mike. Anytime. Baby says she's mine, you know she tells me all the time, you know she said so. I'm in love with her, and I feel fine. And now the spiel, terror, or at least postcards in the sky. Gyronaut Doug Harris, the soon-to-be forcibly retired postman who landed his gyrocopter, gyrocopter, on the Senate lawn. We talked about this guy yesterday. He continues to baffle and frighten Washington officials and the press corps that in no way plays into our national apoplexy. Here's ABC World News Tonight. We begin tonight with that scare in Washington, D.C. and the major security questions... 
Now, it is legitimate to ask questions about security. ABC World News didn't just ask some questions. They fairly whimpered out a what-if nightmare scenario, subtly cueing us to be afraid, to be very afraid the gyrocopters are coming. Tourists fearing terror. You can hear one of them saying, this is not good. The man landing on the west lawn of the Capitol, the bomb squad rushing in. You know, drug-sniffing dogs could have rushed in. Also, the INS, the ATF, the NFL's anti-forgery unit. All of them would find nothing. All they'd find was a dopey idealist with 535 stamped letters. And that part about one of the tourists saying, this is not good. ABC made sure that that was not lost because 20 seconds after anchorman David Muir relayed that quote, here's Jim Avila in his report. The gyrocopter flew over the reflecting pool. This is not good, people. So that was one voice that was heard on a cell phone obtained by AP. Here's another cell phone video. This one was played on NBC. What is happening? (laughs) Is that really the post office? So there you hear laughter and a pretty good question at the end. Is that really the post office? By the way, that post office decal on the gyrocopter's tail is a better plug for the post office than the millions of dollars they spent sponsoring Lance Armstrong's bicycling team. So I submit the proper reaction to all this is somewhere in between laughter and fear, especially with the benefit of hindsight. ABC's newscast aired five hours after the man landed, well after they knew what his intentions were. The New York Times reported it well, I thought, a mix of concern, certainly concern, but also curiosity. Here's how their piece ended. The unexpected landing provided a brief moment of excitement in an otherwise quiet day on Capitol Hill. Aides and reporters raced outside the building and to the windows to see if they could glimpse the gyrocopter. But those expecting a giant spectacle found themselves disappointed. That's not a helicopter, one Capitol employee said with a chuckle. That's a lawn chair with a propeller attached. The networks were not chuckling. Again, ABC. I want to get right to ABC senior justice correspondent Pierre Thomas in Washington tonight as well. And Pierre, I want to show everyone at home that moment again. So much fear those tourists watching this all unfold. And the big question tonight, how did he get into that restricted airspace to begin with? It's supposed to be impenetrable. David, this is supposed to be some of the most restricted airspace on the planet. But so far, there's no indication that radar or sensors picked up this copter. You can't shoot it down or intercept it if you don't know it's coming. Well, you also can't shoot it down if you have a shred of humanity. And also, also, they did know it was coming. I knew it was coming. I saw a tweet from Tampa Tribune reporter Ben Montgomery. He wrote, this is one of the craziest stories I've ever done. I hope nobody gets hurt. I clicked the link. I read the story. I saw the video. I guess in the nomenclature of the day, I breached security. This means that I had foreknowledge of a breach of a restricted airspace. And you could have, too, if you had just read the Tampa Tribune. And by the way, I I was hearing so many reports of restricted airspace, breach the airspace. You know, sometimes when we say something strongly and sternly and emphatically, it seems like we can almost turn the imaginary into the real. Restricted airspace. Air. Airspace. Sounds a lot more foreboding, doesn't it? It's air. It's just air. It's the sky. Restricted airspace. CNN had a fancy graphic with a circle around Washington, D.C., and then a much larger circle drawn. It was like 35 miles in diameter. It depicted the no-fly zone. But in this zone were parks, were open fields. We're talking about something that went the height of a kite, this no-fly zone. Here, listen to this. That means he was still out in a zone where you're supposed to tell the FAA you're flying. So this aircraft of his would have flown for somewhere around two hours before coming in here. 
And now the reporter on CNN draws, he traces on the magic screen, a green arrow to show the flight of the gyrocopter from what appears, again, Jake, unconfirmed, but appears to be a northeasterly direction. Then the reporter starts drawing a totally different arrow from a different direction. We don't know it came from this direction. It could have come from another direction up here, from anywhere. But that meant that this aircraft would have been a couple of hundred feet off the ground, traveling at only 25 miles an hour through what is supposed to be some of the most protected airspace in the country, Jake. I am saying freak out, Jake. Freak the freak out. This was scary. Was it scary? Scary subjective. Most people who saw it, according to the reporter Ben Montgomery, were more either amused or bemused. And from what we know now, that's the proper reaction. The White House also seems to have had the right tone. Here's Homeland Security boss Jay Johnson asking sensibly, What's a gyrocopter? (laughs) And then he added, We're a democracy. You know, we want to stay one step ahead of every incident like this. But then again, you don't want to overreact either. He got that this was civil disobedience and not a threat. A potential threat, sure. Everything is a potential threat. What if he had explosives? Sure. But you know, that gyrocopter landed just a few dozen yards from an open roadway. What if a car in that roadway had a surface-to-air missile and aimed it at the Capitol? That's also a threat. Life is a threat. We could demand that our officials furrow their brows and call air airspace and call our fingers potential weapon delivery mechanisms and try to preemptively thwart every scrap of potential harm befalling their citizens. You know, acting like the governmental version of gyrocopter parents. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer's first question is, wait, where is your filtrum? Joel Meyer, managing producer, first asked, what's an aglet? Executive producer Andy Bowers initially wanted to know, wait, what's a schizocarp? You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter or on iTunes. It's a great place to get the gist. While you're there, leave a review. Guests of the gist stay at the Medicine Hat Marriott. Come for the medicine, stay for the medicine. The gist, you know everyone makes mistakes. We just hope not to wear our pencils down to the ferules. Thanks for listening. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm Raquel Cepeda. I'm Janner Colby. On our next episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, we talk about the brutal police killing of Walter Scott in South Carolina and ask, will something really change? Do black lives actually matter? We address Kendrick Lamar's announcement about his wife-to-be and the dark-skinned activist who went in on him because she's not dark at all. Colorism still alive. And finally, we deal with Mindy Kaling's brother, Vijay Chokalingam, who pretended to be black in order to get into middle school 17 years ago to prove that affirmative action doesn't work and is wrong. Is he right? We'll talk about that as well. Check out our national conversation about conversations about race on Panoply. Panoply.